Good morning, all, and welcome to Around the World in 20 Minutes, our podcast where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And um, it's the end of a long week in New York. It's gone really, really well, thanks to Kashif uh, for hosting dinner last night. We had a fascinating discussion. Again, the best part of my job is the interesting people you get to meet, and it was a great dinner. We had sushi and red wine and good conversation, and thank you, Kashif, for hosting me this week. Um, it's been great to be in New York. It's been great to play our war game, but I'm ready to head home now. And you can tell by my voice by the end of the week, I'm usually hoarse and we're pretty close to that now. But I couldn't leave without doing a podcast about the passing of Henry Kissinger. Uh, Martin Amos famously uh, said of his father Kingsley, with whom he had a, a tumultuous relationship, that it didn't matter that with the passing of his father, he felt that he was on his own now for the first time. And in a very odd way, as a realist, I feel that way. Although I don't practice the exact form of realism that Henry Kissinger did, uh, during my the opening of my eyes to realism as a philosophy, as a way to live your life, as a way to look at the world, Henry Kissinger was one of the dominant figures ever to do foreign policy. And so this has been very much on my mind. Um, today that I've read so many of his books from his thesis, A World Restored, about Metternich and Castlereagh and the setting up of the post-Napoleonic era, through to Diplomacy, his magnum opus, a book about almost everything, uh, very much in line with the way I look at the world, big picture, bold, sweeping statements and tying history together. Because nobody did history and linking it to foreign affairs better than, than Henry. And so uh, to that extent, I'm part of that tradition. And in a very odd way, I feel alone today because now that generation is entirely passed from the scene and now we're dependent only on ourselves. And uh, I couldn't but, but mention that in our new book, uh, which you're all waiting for, thank you, Last Best Hope, uh, A History of American Realism, we actually have a chapter on Nixon and Kissinger and their opening to China. So I thought I'd read from that uh, today uh, to get us through to the weekend. And uh, it's chapter eight of the new book. Again, Last Best Hope is going to be out and available. January 10th is our D-Day to go on Amazon. Give us the five stars and say, can't wait to read John's book and we'll get Jeff Bezos and his algorithm working for us. But I'll give you a free peek at chapter eight, which is called Dealing with the Devil. Nixon's pivot to China is the game changer in the Cold War. By the time Richard Milhouse Nixon finally made it to the White House in January 1969, the Cold War had been dragging on for an unedifying two decades, with no end in sight. Worse, the United States, if anything, seemed to be falling behind its Soviet competitors. The previous year, 1968, had just been awful for the country, with the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy, fraught race relations triggering mass inner-city violence, and pitched battles fought on the streets of Chicago between police and the youthful and increasingly radicalized Vietnam protesters at the Democratic National Convention. It seemed as if America itself was coming apart at the seams. Nixon, one of the most stable and among the strangest men ever to assume the presidency, was to dramatically turn the tables on this narrative of domestic decline and international stasis. Most American presidents come to power 
with no actual fixed intellectual program regarding foreign policy. The events they encounter and their responses to them are fleshed out out of their thinking, and they come after the fact. They experience things and then, in, in retrospect, provide a rationale. But this was very much not the case with the Nixon presidency. With world-class foreign policy intellectual Henry Kissinger serving as his national security advisor and chief foreign policy partner, Nixon came to the Oval Office with a set of fixed realist principles that he was determined to implement across the globe. The duo's undeniable success is first and foremost due to this critical fact that they first thought through how the world actually worked and then devised a foreign policy initiative to fit their realist point of view rather than being, being tossed about on the tides of history. Nixon and Kissinger observed that America was simply not winning the long-standing Cold War contest with the Soviet Union. As they clearly saw this to be the case, realism impelled them to do the next obvious thing, change the rules of a game that wasn't going well for the country. In his incredibly bold opening to China, Nixon was to do just this, dealing with the devil that was Mao's incredibly bloody regime and in doing so, mastering the Cold War itself. At the opening of Nixon's term, the idea that the American president would visit the People's Republic of China was about as likely as him going to the moon. Since communist victory in the Chinese Civil War in 1949, for 22 years there had been no commercial or diplomatic ties between the world's foremost superpower and the most populous country on Earth. The U.S. continued to recognize the Chinese nationalist Guomingdong government of Chiang Kai-shek, which had fled the Chinese mainland for the island of Taiwan, following defeat in the Civil War, as the, main, as the sole government of China, whatever the reality. The reasons for this strategic estrangement were legion. At the time, almost every American policymaker wrongly saw the communist bloc, headed by the USSR, but with China as an emerging of still junior partner, as monolithic international communism, marching in lockstep to defeat the Western capitalist forces headed by the United States. If anything, with the death of Stalin in 1953, it was Mao's regime which was viewed as the more ideologically stridently anti-American of the two, having actually gone to war with the United States and Korea from 1950 to 53. Even if the communist bloc was breaking up, as was actually the case in the 1960s, how could the U.S. treat with a blood-soaked regime that would kill an incomprehensible 40 to 80 million of its own people through starvation, persecution, prison labor, and mass executions, even given the, given the trinity of 20th century evil, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, the chairman was surely the Ted Bundy of international relations. How could Nixon work with such a monster? The simple answer was that in doing so, he mightily furthered America's primary interests. Sensing that vague reports of a fundamental split between the USSR and China were real, Nixon almost immediately moved to exploit the schism. First, there was the diplomatic prize of China itself. As Nixon had written in Asia After Vietnam, a foreign affairs article in 1967, taking the long view, we simply cannot afford to leave China forever outside the family of nations. It was simply too big, too populous, had too much economic potential, and was too strategically important to remain eternally an international pariah. Second, and this was Nixon's initial focus for the pivot, the president felt improved ties with Beijing, or Peking as it was called then, could be a cudgel used to pressure the Soviets 
into reaching an arms control deal over nuclear weapons and even lead to a more general superpower detente. Washington would gain a new heavyweight partner to counter Moscow, which would put the Soviets on the defensive. More specifically, it was wrongly hoped that in the new strategic environment, Moscow might be forced to lessen its support for an increasingly victorious North Vietnam. Third, Kissinger, even going beyond this, came to see the China pivot as changing the very global balance of power, the world's polarity itself. Instead of using improved relations with Beijing primarily as a bludgeon to threaten Moscow, as Nixon stressed, Henry envisaged a triangular set of relations that could create a more stable world balance. We move toward China, he said, to create a global equilibrium. Within this tripolar system, the first significant power change at the global geostrategic level since the Cold War had begun a quarter century before, the U.S. was still individually by far the most powerful player. However, the key to America's ultimate advantage would lie in the fact that it was the fulcrum of this new global power reality. The United States was central, and that both other great powers would come to have better ties with America than either had with each other. Fearing isolation, both would move toward the U.S. at the same time. So the pivot to China, invaluable on its own terms, amounted to much more. It came to define a new power reality at the global level one that greatly favored a formerly beleaguered America. As Kissinger later put it, to have the two communist powers competing for good relations with us could only benefit the cause of peace. It was the essence of the triangular strategy. If that meant dealing with the devil that was Mao, then so be it, to secure American primacy in a very dangerous world. Here Nixon's specific biography came to his rescue as the ultimate cold warrior. Throughout the whole of his political career, since his days as a congressman on the House Un-American Activities Committee, exposing communist influence in the State Department, Nixon had made his name as an avowed anti-communist. Given the strident, rightish, hawkish credentials, it was politically very hard to argue that the president made it a practice to be soft on communism. In fact, the White House's political strategy over the China pivot proved so successful that it spawned an idiom. Only Nixon could go to China came to mean in English that a person's past reputation would actually shield them from making seemingly contradictory moves in life to find conventional wisdom. As the historian Timothy Naftali wisely notes, given the lockstep ideological anti-communism governing the American elite at the time, I believe the argument that only Richard Nixon could have done this in American politics. For the Chinese... The dramatic diplomatic about-face made realist sense as well. Beyond their huge ideological and values gulf, specific realist interests, above all a common desire to resist the spread of Soviet influence, gravitationally pushed these very odd allies decisively together, as interests almost always ultimately determine foreign policy decision-making. For monolithic communism was a thing of the past. The Sino-Soviet split emerged over Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev's more moderate leadership after the death of Stalin in March 1953 and his electrifying denunciation of the excesses of the Soviet dictator in 1956. Mao, who like Stalin ran a personality-driven dictatorship, felt threatened by Khrushchev's charges, pushing the twin reformist policies of de-Stalinization and peaceful coexistence with the West. Khrushchev was almost immediately met by very public and embarrassing resistance from Mao's regime over both points. 
Beyond these broad differences, a divergence over the number of specific policy areas also quickly emerged. The Soviets reneged on a commitment to provide China with a prototype of a nuclear bomb in 1957. Despite the great Chinese famine of 1959-61, when Mao's economic illiteracy made the Great Leap Forward modernization program, um, and this directly led to the deaths of 15 to 55 million people, Moscow insisted on receiving grain export shipments already agreed upon. Khrushchev became Mao's convenient scapegoat in place of his obvious culpability for this unbelievable calamity. Likewise, Beijing resented the USSR's increased ties to India, even as China engaged in a sporadic border war with New Delhi. For his part, the Soviet premier was horrified at the flippant way the chairman often referred to nuclear war. Ideologically pulls apart, by 1961, the People's Republic formally demonized Soviet communism as the work of revisionist traitors. But beneath these very real differences in ideas, the schism was also about practical power. The Batman problem as to who was going to lead the communist world and who was destined to merely play the part of sidekick, Robin. While Khrushchev criticized seemingly un unimportant Albania and Verhoja for running the place like a Stalinist prison, Mao leapt to his fellow communist dictator's defense. For what po Moscow and Peking were buying for was nothing less than the global leadership of communism. Finally, in late 1962, the PRC broke off relations with the Soviet Union for the nonsensical reason, but it did look good at the time to other communists around the world, that the Soviet premier had not gone to nuclear war with the Kennedy brothers over the Cuban Missile Crisis. Eventually, the rivalry led to outright blows. Beginning in March 1969 and lasting for seven months, an undeclared Sino-Soviet border war raged along the Usuri River, demarcating the boundary between the two countries. This, above all, convinced China that the Soviet Union was the bigger strategic threat than America. As such, it needed protection from the stronger Soviets. The Nixon administration was the logical place for Mao to turn. For all of Kissinger's later brilliant contributions, at the beginning, the China pivot was entirely Richard Nixon's idea. Only one week into his term in office, the president called his national security advisor telling him he wanted to open relations with the People's Republic. A skeptical Kissinger relayed Nixon's desire to H.R. Haldeman, Nixon's ferocious chief of staff, saying such a pipe dream would never come to pass. But then again, Richard Nixon was used to being underestimated. And then Nixon went along after this to push forward, despite the fact that even Henry Kissinger didn't really believe what he was doing. The president said the unfolding diplomatic drama that was the pivot to China played to the president's character as it was epitomized by boldness, an expert intellectual realist grasp of geostrategy, secrecy, and elaborate deception. As the overtures to China went on, not even the vice president or the secretary of state was aware of what was going on. For the American side, Nixon and the able Kissinger managed the initiative almost entirely alone. The president chose to use the Pakistani government of General Yahya Khan as a backdoor conduit, as Islamabad was uniquely friendly with both Washington and Beijing. As far back as Nixon's August 1969 trip around the world, he had personally asked Khan to convey to Mao's regime that the White House was willing to start a new relationship with China. In October 1970, Nixon followed up, as Khan was given a letter for Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai, 
proposing sending an American emissary to China to discuss the possibility of a presidential visit, which the Pakistani president relayed a week later. For the Pakistani side, only its president and foreign minister knew what was going on, as secrecy was vital if the whole initiative was to have a ghost of a chance. A host of outside forces would dearly have loved to strangle the groundbreaking foreign policy gambit at birth. From Nixon's point of view, subterfuge preserved the great drama of the occasion and circumvented the establishment State Department bureaucracy from killing it, all while avoiding paralyzing public and congressional debate, derailing the pivot. Finally, Nixon headed off conservatives in his own party, avowed anti-communists like himself, who would have scuttled the whole effort. As Nixon bluntly said, simply put, we never could have done it if it were not kept secret. Finally, on April 21, 1971, after waiting more than six months, China sent its favorable reply. Mao conditionally was inviting Nixon to China, but only after an emissary, the irrepressible Kissinger was suggested by name, visited to negotiate the details. As Kissinger grandly put it to Nixon, this is the most important communication that has come to an American president since the end of World War II. This was all to be done in secret. The elaborate deception began on July 1, 1971, with Kissinger heading off on a fact-finding tour of Asia. Once he reached Pakistan, Kissinger feigned illness, requiring him to rest at a hill station in the Himalayas, far removed from Islamabad. There, the Pakistani foreign minister personally drove Henry to an airfield, and he was whisked off to China. In his haste, Kissinger had forgotten to bring along any spare shirts for his diplomatic mission, being forced to borrow much larger spares from one of his aides. When the pictures of his meetings in China were eventually released, the vain national security advisor looked delighted, though also, though also as if he were drowning in his clothes. Worse, as he later puckishly recounted, the shirts were made in Taiwan. <laughs> Kissinger finally landed in Beijing on July 9, 1971. This able practitioner of realism was under the gun, having only 48 hours to nail down the terms for the coming visit. For the Chinese side, Mao deputized his indispensable ally, Zhou Enlai, to work out the deal with Kissinger. Zhou was cultured and educated, where Mao was crude and blunt, the stoic, where Mao was paranoid. He was also urbane, gaunt, graceful, worldly, and utterly loyal to Mao to the point of subservience. The Chinese premier made a great impression on Henry. Kissinger noted Zhao's expressive face, intense piercing eyes, and the self-confidence which had enabled him to survive every one of Mao's purges, though two of his adopted children were tortured and murdered by Red Guards in 1966 during the lunacy of Mao's cultural revolution. Ultimately, Zhou would serve as the chairman's only prime minister for 22 storm-tossed years. Kissinger held an exhausting 17 hours of meetings with Zhou over these two critical days. Initially, both sides made clear they were there because of their shared distrust of the Soviet Union. While it was apparent that the USSR drove Beijing and Washington together, it was just as apparent that their vast differences over Taiwan had the capacity, even then, to scuttle the budding alliance. Taiwan was not the only major area of disagreement. With America coming apart over anti-war protests, Kissinger asked Zhou for help, putting pressure on its communist ally in Hanoi to end the Vietnam War. Zhou bluntly replied that there was no chance of this happening and that the only solution, and here he was correct, was for U.S. troops to leave. 
Kissinger and Nixon, Nixon had miscalculated how steadfast the Chinese and the Soviets, for that matter, would prove to be in support of their North Vietnamese ally. Given these significant differences, it was by no means assured that enough would be agreed on to justify the summit taking place. To break the logjam, Joe proposed an ingenious solution, which was readily accepted by Kissinger and laid the basis for the final Shanghai communique, agreed by Nixon and the Chinese leadership during his later visit. The Chinese premier argued for a document that, while it detailed mutual Chinese and American interests in commonly resisting the Soviets throughout the world, also did not paper over their many differences, particularly regarding Taiwan. Both sides were given free reign in the document to declare unilaterally their positions over major issues where they did not agree. As the historian Walter Isaacson shrewdly notes, the great breakthrough on Taiwan was that there did not need to be a great breakthrough on Taiwan. As Mao was later to say to Nixon and Kissinger during their meeting, Taiwan was not the most important matter of substance between the two great powers. It had not been resolved over the past 20 years, and the resolution could wait another 20 years, even another century. The Shanghai communique stated, to the, to the delight of the People's Republic, that there was only one China, without ever quite saying who would serve as its ultimate government, and that Taiwan was an indivisible part of such an entity. At the same time, the U.S. reaffirmed its acute interest in a peaceful settlement of the dispute. However, as Kissinger would darkly note, Mao made it crystal clear that Beijing would not foreclose its option to use force over Taiwan, indeed expected to have to use force someday, and there the matter uneasily rests to this day. The summit had been salvaged precisely because at the time both great powers thought their interests were better served by commonly opposing Soviet adventurism rather than fighting amongst themselves over Taiwan. To put it mildly, this is no longer the case today. However, then it was good enough for Zhou, who agreed to go ahead with the earth-shattering visit. On July 15, 1971, Nixon boldly announced on television that he would visit China the following year. In a single stroke, the president had confounded all his enemies, the Soviets, the North Vietnamese, the press, and the liberal Democrats. Immense credit was due to the two men atop American foreign policy making. As Roger Morris, Kissinger's former aide and frequent critic, managed to admit, just as the China opening could not have begun and continued without Nixon's vision, it never would have been so skillfully executed without Kissinger. Nixon's February 21 to 28, 1972 visit to China was the first made by any sitting U.S. president. While seeing Peking, Hanzhou, Mao's summer retreat, and Shanghai, the president, with television cameras in tow providing live coverage, took the American people along with him. As Isaacson observes, for a generation, the U.S. public and its professional ruling elite viewed China as a fanatic revolutionary realm, a terra incognita, of the sort that ancient cartographers used to label here be dragons. For their part, with the Cultural Revolution still in full swing, the Chinese leadership had until very recently denounced Nixon personally as a bloodthirsty gangster. Things were so uncertain and on edge that when he landed, Nixon did not know if Chairman Mao would even deign to receive him. He needn't have worried. After ostentatiously shaking hands with Zhou, as opposed to Eisenhower's Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, who had humiliated the premier by disdaining to do so at an international conference in the 1950s, Nixon and Kissinger were immediately whisked off to Mao's deceptively simple house within the red walls of the imperial city in Peking. 
The chairman was there to give his official blessing to the visit, even as he deputized Joe to handle its details and be the president's chaperone. As such, the Americans met with Mao only once for about an hour when they, while they conversed with Joe dozens of times during the trip. Unbeknownst to Nixon, at the time of the visit, Mao was in poor health, having been hospitalized for several weeks until just nine days ahead of Nixon arriving in Beijing. Mao needed to be lifted up by AIDS for his momentous handshake with the president. Self-deprecating, humorous, and simply spoken, in marked contrast to the elegant Joe, Mao joked when he met Nixon, I believe our old friend Chiang Kai-shek would not approve of this. By bringing up Chiang uh, Kai-shek, long the ruler of Taiwan, and Mao's ultimate rival, up front, the old monster put his guests at ease. Mao later told his doctor that he had been impressed by Nixon's forthrightness during their talks, contrasting his persona favorably with both verbose Western leftists and the Soviets. At the same time, the chairman distrusted the smiling Kissinger, who had ruthlessly sidelined the ineffectual Secretary of State, William Rogers, and the whole sclerotic American foreign policy apparatus from the key talks. American television reported the visit to a mesmerized country. I remember seeing this as a little boy myself. My parents put me in front of the TV, and it looked as though, again, it were a moonwalk. Nixon was seen with his wife Pat on the Great Wall at the ballet, written by Mao's venomous wife, Jane Quing, the fanatical leader of the Gang of Four far-leftist faction that was perpetrating the Cultural Revolution for the chairman, visiting the Ming tombs, exploring the Forbidden City, and at innumerable banquets. But beneath the glittering pageantry, the substantive work of the summit went on as the two sides toiled over the final wording of the Shanghai communique, which was to govern their relations for the next generation. In the formal sessions with Zhou, the Chinese premier preferred to speak philosophically, leaving the diplomatic specifics to more junior staff, which suited Nixon to the ground, as the president also preferred talking about global strategy rather than engaging in tactical haggling. When the dust settled and the trip came to an end, it was clear to all that a new world based on a wholly different tripolar power structure was in the process of being born. As Nixon grandly put it, this was the week that changed the world. While it was to take seven more years in 1979, President Jimmy Carter and Chinese paramount leader Deng Xiaoping, Zhou's protege, who seized power from the Gang of Four following Mao's death in 1976, and was the driver behind the country's remarkable modernization, would finally establish full diplomatic relations. But there was absolutely no doubt that Nixon's pivot had flung the door open. As Kissinger incisively said, the trip in the Chinese pivot transformed the structure of international politics. Even the most undemonstrative of statesmen, Zhou Enlai, proclaimed that the world had shaken. Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, the oddest of couples, amount to one of the great double acts in American diplomatic history. Over their greatest collective geostrategic triumph, the pivot to China, there are laurels enough for both. Nixon's original vision and persistence forced the issue. Kissinger brought the initiative to fruition and fitted into a foreign policy framework based on a triangular global balance with America at the fulcrum. Absolutely nothing would have happened without their shared realist principles that American foreign policy should be about doing good rather than feeling good. That meant moving away from the standard Wilsonian fairy tales based on simplistic notions of good and evil and being prepared to make a deal with the undeniable devil that was Mao in order to live in a world far more conducive to basing American interests and those of its decent people.
For a while, Nixon's fabulous diplomatic winning streak continued. In May 1972, following a summit with the Soviets, clearly rattled by the China opening and far more diplomatically pliant than usual, Nixon signed the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, or SALT-1, the first arms control agreement designed to limit the increase in nuclear weapons between the superpowers. It froze all offensive nuclear missile construction for the next five years. Yet this record of almost unthinkable diplomatic accomplishment was to come dramatically undone by the Watergate scandal, wherein Nixon and other senior members of his, of his administration, though not Henry, actively weaponized U.S. government agencies against his enemies. In the end, for all his gifts, Nixon's paranoia got the better of him, as tragically the president brought himself down. Faced with indisputable evidence of his involvement in both the Watergate cover-up and this wider malfeasance, Nixon became the first and only man ever to resign the presidency on August 9, 1974. History, like the people who inhabit it, is complicated. While Nixon's tragic, self-defeating chicanery was real, stopping him from attaining a perch as one of America's truly great presidents, his accomplishments were genuine too. Here was a man who won the geostrategic trifecta, ending direct U.S. combat involvement in the disastrous Vietnam War in 1973, opening a period of detente with the Soviets, presiding over the pivot to China, which ultimately contributed mightily to America's triumph in the Cold War itself in 1991. None of these great strategic successes would ever have come about if Nixon and Henry had not been dyed-in-the-wool realists, for the opening to China illustrated one of realism's great strategic precepts. The world is destined to remain anarchic and violent, as it has been since the time of the Trojan War. Given this tragic reality, grounded in the very fiber of human history, there has not been a single day on the planet since the dawn of writing where there has not been a war somewhere. The U.S. must remain eternally vig vigilant, self-sufficient, and more than adequately armed, but it must do one more thing. It must be ruthlessly prepared to cut deals with less than savory, le savory leaders and countries if doing so furthers basic U.S. interests and those of its people. Dealing with the und undoubted monster that was Mao helped the U.S. to win the Cold War, thus securing for future American generations the blessings of liberty, freedom, and a world run on generally favorable U.S. terms. In our own era, we must continue to move away from the Wilsonian fairy tale of simplistic good and evil, and instead look good and hard at our still anarchic planet. For example, lost in all the self-congratulation about the Biden administration uniting the West against Russia over the Ukraine war, there lurks an underlying disturbing geostrategic reality. The developing world is not yet prepared to decisively side with either the West or the United States. Over Ukraine, strikingly, nine of the ten most populous countries in the world, India, China, Indonesia, Pakistan, Brazil, Nigeria, Bangladesh, Russia, and Mexico, have been studiously neutral regarding the conflict, or have actively sided with the Kremlin, despite the drumbeat of American pressure. The simple reality is that in the new Sino-American Cold War, developing world regional powers continue to hedge their bets. A number of these countries are not democratic or are imperfect democracies at best. A number have leaders I do not want dating my daughter, Matilda. None of that means the United States should not do everything in its power over the next generation 
to win over a majority of these pivotal states, as their support could well spell the difference over time between a Chinese-dominated world and an American-dominated planet. The higher plane of ethical realist morality surely dictates that making future deals with the devil might just ensure an American-dominated world, which morally, for all our country's failings, is infinitely superior to any alternative. Go in peace, Henry Kissinger. Um, and remember, uh, Kissinger, today, that for all the talk and all the controversy, all the quips about power being the greatest aphrodisiac, that Henry Kissinger at base was a remarkably gifted realist thinker and statesman who got to put his ideas into practice. Go well, Henry. Hope you enjoyed that. Fun to do that. Gave you a good bit of the chapter, chapter eight in The Last Best Hope. And I wanted to leave with realism in the passing of Henry Kissinger. Please do subscribe and please do give the $70, which is the farthing we're asking so I can continue to do these things, even as I sit jet lagged in my um, New York hotel room as I frantically pack to head back to Milan. Everybody take care. Have a great weekend. And I'm glad to have read out of the book at this key moment. Take care of yourselves.